0: Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code radio20 at bloomberglive.com slash festival.
3: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. I am Sebastian Salik.
1: And I'm Roger Herring. Very good afternoon to you. Scotland very much in focus today. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon pushing the case once again for independence as she welcomed the Prime Minister on his visit to Scotland today. It's Boris Johnson's first trip north of the border since the election in December. He claims around 900,000 workers in the country have benefited from government assistance during the pandemic. But the SNP's Westminster leader, Ian Blackford, says he wants to see a tailored commitment from Johnson. Is coming to the islands today, and of course we have many vulnerable tourist-facing
3: businesses that are going to have a very short season. We welcome the furlough scheme. We want to see it in place, but it needs to be there for as long as people need it. Yeah, it's really action stations, isn't it, for the Conservatives, those polls pointing in the wrong direction for them anyway in terms of Scottish independence. A lot of it apparently due to the way that Scotland has dealt with the coronavirus outbreak differently. Uh, so we've already heard that the Prime Minister is encouraging his Cabinet to be more apparent on uh, in the Scottish media and in Scotland in general, and this is an extension of that. The other thing that ties in with that is a report which has uh, called the government's failure to plan for the economic effects of the pandemic astonishing this comes from the house of commons public accounts committee they say the reaction was rushed and that it left whole sectors behind that's of course in spite of the huge furlough scheme which has the government pay workers 80 percent of their wages and is set to continue until the end of october but here's meg hillier who chairs that committee the key thing is if they've been planning for the economic outfall at the same time as for the health pandemic then we would have seen just some bit th- greater thought into not just delivering on those uh, job retention schemes, but also how you get the economy back on its feet at a later date.
1: That was Meg Hillier, who is chair of the Public Accounts Committee. And I'm really very pleased to say joining us now on the programme is Anthony Brown, Conservative MP for South Cambridge. Anthony, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Let's, we'll talk about Scotland in a minute, but first of all, let's pick up on that report from the uh, Public Accounts Committee because the language was quite strong. Uh, I mean, Obviously, it's a committee on which conservatives as well, part of uh, set, making this verdict, but they talk about an astonishing failure of governance. How do you respond to that?
4: Yeah, although there are Conservatives on the committee, Meckler, who you just quoted, was a Labour MP. Um, so mo- most people agree that the response to the government by the government to the uh, the epidemic, from an economic point of view, has been extraordinary. I mean, just huge programmes rolled out with amazing speed, and you mentioned the furlough scheme, there's the bounce back loans. It's been uh, schemes have been tweaked when things have changed to make sure that people can take full advantage of it. There's a self-employment income scheme, which HMRC uh, rolled out, again, at a sort of incredible sc- speed. Um, the point, and that's been recognised across the world as being sort of a world-leading thing, it's totals, if you add it all up, and, uh, the, the grants and loans and everything else, about £300 billion worth, tax deferrals, tax deferrals, grants to pubs and uh, uh, restaurants and so on. Um, the point that Meg Hillier was making is that the government should have planned it in advance ahead of the uh, uh, epidemic as part of the health planning uh, pandemic Uh, and that is a criticism that could go back for 20 years or so because no government has done that and uh, i think there are lessons clearly there are lessons to learn from this pandemic and as a whole the government has announced uh, an inquiry uh, and that will be one of the things uh that obviously we need to look at is the planning in advance of a pandemic not just um uh, how we respond when there is a pandemic but what do we need to do beforehand because there will be pandemics in future hopefully not to this scale at least not for a very long time. Uh,
3: and looking ahead Anthony the chancellor has been pretty firm about furlough ending when he said it will end uh, but this as we know is a very unpredictable situation there could be all sorts of twists and turns. Has he boxed himself into a corner there?
4: Um, the furlough scheme is incredibly generous. We're spending more on it than the NHS at the moment. It's nine point three four uh, million people having their wages paid by the government, and it has to end at some point. It's being tapered out because if there was a cliff edge, then uh, it would be far from more dramatic, too dramatic change for many companies and increase the number of people who uh, sort of end up uh, un- unemployed as a result. And tapering, we had long discussions about this. Tapering is the best way to sort of ease people out of it. If it's ending at the end of October, and people said, "Well, it we should go until November." If he said November, uh, points he made in Parliament, then people would just said December. And if he said December, people would have said January. It's got to end at some point. But The other thing is the uh, the Chancellor has been throughout all this um, uh, clear that he keeps everything under review the whole time, as it were. So that, uh, and there have been, as I was saying earlier, different schemes have been tweaked uh, as a result of changing dynamics, et cetera. But as with the, with the pandemic going the way it is going now then absolutely Australia needs to come to an end, and absolutely, I think October is about the right time.
1: Let's move on to talking about Scotland, because that obviously, I think, is very much in focus today with the Prime Minister's visit. But what it shows up, I guess, and has shown up to many people, is that the amount of devolution we have does mean that in many areas, things are done differently on different sides of borders that perhaps people have kind of forgotten almost existed – but that said, it does look as if in Scotland, perhaps, and, and some of the other devolved nations, things were done in ways that seemed to work better in terms of dealing with the pandemic. I mean, the uh, numbers per, of deaths per 100,000 people were much less, almost half, in fact, in Scotland compared to England. Wales was also less. I mean, do you think it suggests that actually the kind of government we have in Scotland is better at dealing with this sort of crisis?
4: No, the circumstances are very different in Scotland than they are in England on a number of different levels. I mean, one is that uh, England has got far more densely crowded metropolises. I'm thinking particularly of uh, London, but it's in densely crowded cities like that that you get the outbreak really sort of takes off to an extraordinary degree. You saw the same in New York. You saw the same in Paris. Uh, there are also, there's probably more overcrowding uh, in terms of housing in the UK. And we know that overcrowding housing, the sort of thing we saw in Leicester, uh, is more likely to lead to the pandemic taking off. But so they're very, very different uh, circumstances. But one thing that uh, is clear is that a lot of the response to the pandemic, uh, and certainly economically that we were just talking about, it has been done, almost all of it's been done at a UK-wide level. So health is a devolved issue. Uh, but the economic response, the uh job retention scheme, the uh, bounce back loans, all the uh, support in terms of tax refer- uh, referral and the health on welfare, universal credit, etc. That's the whole UK has been operating together on that. And a lot of the, um, the, the help that uh, Scotland had as well on the health side actually did come from UK institutions like the Army. Uh, it helps out massively in Scotland in terms of developing uh, testing centres and mobilising all the logistics around that.
3: Regardless of that, though, the reason that Boris Johnson is in Scotland today is because the polls are pointing to rising support for independence. And we had some strong words from the SNP Deputy Leader Keith Brown. He says the only reason Boris Johnson is there is because he's in full blown panic mode. And I know that's something that's been reported uh, as being discussed among Tories in Westminster. Is that something you recognise as well? Is that the sort of discussion you've been having?
4: well i i mean i saw Boris Johnson last night and uh i must admit he didn't seem panicked at all it was he gave a very upbeat vision about the uh our future program as we come out of this crisis and all the de- delivering on the agenda that we we're elected to, for in uh, two thousand and nineteen in terms of lever- leveling up uh in terms of uh, uh protecting the union uh we are the conservative unionist party and uh, all scottish uh, all conservative MPs are very keen uh to make sure the union uh, stays intact. We're far stronger together uh, than we are apart, and it's absolutely right that we make the case for the union. The SNP have got a big presence in Parliament, and it's quite funny being in Parliament. All they talk about the whole time is uh, independence. Uh, whatever the issue is that we're talking about, they just go on and on about independence. Right. Uh, and it's fair, you know. And as the governments, we absolutely clearly need to make the case for uh, keeping the union together.
1: But that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, that is that is their raison d'etre. And uh, they could, well, get a majority in uh, in elections coming up, local elections, for example, in Scotland. I mean, if you don't allow them another vote, you're basically denying their democratic legitimacy. You're actually, in a way, denying the uh, views of the people of Scotland.
4: Well, we did have a referendum in Scotland, the independence referendum, just a few years back, and it, both sides said, um, both the sort of pro-independent and anti-independent side, uh, said that this is a once-in-a-generation uh, referendum. And uh, a generation isn't just a few years. You can't keep on having a referendum every but, few Anthony, years. But Anthony, a lot has changed uh, since un- then, not least of all Brexit. Well, Brexit, has, has clearly that has changed. But actually, the the polls about whether people want uh, another uh, referendum or not, doesn't show a clear result. I know the recent opinion polls uh, have shown a majority in favour of independence, but we had that before uh, ahead of the uh, independence referendum, which they then lost. So you, you really can't judge everything from uh, from opinion polls. Uh, and the SNP, I mean they have been in the government in Scotland for a long time, I think there's a very strong case of a closer examination of their track record. If you look at things like ed- education achievements, they've got uh, they've had really, really really severe problems there yeah. uh there's a lot of other things about like the nhs in scotland where they've got uh they've got particular, uh, real particular problems uh, and they should be focusing on those issues that affect the day-to-day lives of people in scotland and lo- lots oh. of people in scotland and i know this from from uh, uh friends in scotland but i think the polls shirt as well actually lots of people in scotland do vote for the snp but doesn't actually mean they want full independence they're voting for them oh. as a government in scotland which which uh uh, who they don't want independence, but actually by banging the drum for Scotland, they think it gets a better deal for Scotland from the uh, Westminster government. A
1: very brief answer, if you would, on this. Uh, I think it's are running out of time. But is it time to tighten up on the kind of ways in which ministers? The Times reporting this morning, including six cabinet ministers, getting cash linked to Russia. Is it time to tighten up on that?
4: Well, there are very very tight rules on political donations uh, already, as you know, and these. Uh, the people who are making donations were all British systems, and British systems are allowed to give donations. Foreign systems uh, aren't allowed to give donations. And you can't have a scheme which says, well, some types of British systems are allowed to give donations, but other types of British systems aren't allowed to give donations. So, and they were all uh, openly declared. They are all completely legal. And what the this story implies is that basically you divides British systems into two types, those that have the right to give uh, right. political support to political parties and those that don't. And I think that would be deeply inappropriate, inappropriate and unfair. Mm-hmm.
3: Let's have a look at what the other stories are today. Roger, we start with the arts. Yes, the
1: Culture Select Committee has issued a report saying the government's failed to recognise the effects of the pandemic on the arts sector. The chair of the committee, Julian Knight, says the £1.757 billion package intended for theatres and concert halls has come too late to save jobs and venues. These sectors, which are high-earning, drivers of... Foreign capital and tourism, if they can't uh, get back to some normality and they can't survive this, then we're not going to have an economy that
3: grows in the way in which we would like it to do. Uh, There's plenty uh, that we've done on the arts as well. So go through our back catalogue if you want to hear more about the government's response to that sector. And then there was a bit of praise to be found for the UK's virus response, despite the report we talked about in the first part of the programme. It comes from the US economist Tyler Cowen. He's writing in Bloomberg Opinion. The piece is called The UK's response to COVID-19 has been world class. There's something we haven't heard for a little while. And one of the things he points to is a cheap steroid known as dexamethasone, which was the first drug to reduce death in covid 19 patients and he was saying that that is uh is now part of the treatment around the world even poor countries can afford it and he says this is an achievement that is a total home run as he puts it and it really puts britain at the front of that research and that is what makes their response so so good
1: Well, if we're at the front of the queue there, we're certainly not when it comes to trade deals, because it seems the UK is going to have to accept it's unlikely to get a trade deal with the US before the end of the Brexit transition period. Bloomberg's learned that Britain's more likely to conclude negotiations with the US in January rather than this year, and that comes after the virus slowed the progress of discussion. Sources said that agriculture in particular had been a sticking point in the talks, and uh, agriculture's what we're going to be focusing on on Bloomberg Westminster tomorrow, so don't miss that.
3: Yeah, it's really one of those uh, sectors that has it all, doesn't it? It's Brexit, it's virus, it's the whole gamut. So stay tuned for that one tomorrow. And then finally, we've got to talk about China and their influence. A a think tank run by the former advisor, Theresa May, is saying that this is high on the agenda. It says UK universities dependence on fees from Chinese students could make them financially vulnerable. Uh, This comes from the Onward director, Will Tanner, who says many of Britain's most prestigious universities rely on China for as much as 30% of their students. And that money risks being used as a geopolitical bargaining tool comes of course amid these escalations between the uk and beijing over huawei over hong kong over all sorts of things uh, and then chinese state television as well taking the english premier league football matches off the air bloomberg sources saying that cctv won't show the remainder of the current competition round but Roger funding for universities always a hot topic especially when so many students Chinese British whatever have been at home during yes. a big part of the term and they'd be paying a lot of money for it yes they may not feel they're getting their money's worth but let's talk about our
1: electoral system there's been a lot of focus this week on its safety suggestions that Russia Others may have been involved in trying at least to influence votes, including the 2014 Scottish independence referendum, the 2016 Brexit vote, even, according to the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, the 2019 election. So how vulnerable is our electoral process to outside interference? Joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is Darren Hughes, who's chief executive of the Electoral Reform Society. Darren, thanks for being with us. Welcome to the programme. How safe is our electoral system as it is at the moment?
2: Well, I think it depends on which uh, angle you're looking at it from. So the actual mechanism of voting, uh, going to a polling station, uh, having your name checked, being given a ballot paper, marking that ballot paper, putting it in the box, knowing that it will be counted uh, correctly, uh, that, that that is secure. And the, the report's very clear about that, that having a, uh, a paper-based system with, with a, an audit trail uh, is, is very important. And, of course, uh Trying to manipulate that at scale is is virtually impossible. Uh, but but the other aspect of the uh, electoral system is the influence of voters, uh, how uh, it's possible to uh, conduct a political debate, create opinions, or try and sway opinions uh, during an election campaign uh, period. And I think on that score, uh, the things that happen before the day of the vote, if you like, uh, there are a lot of vulnerabilities. And the, the report of the intelligence committee really does lay bare the vulnerabilities that exist uh, in that space.
3: And the million-dollar question then, Darren, is how do you combat that?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of ways of, of doing it. Some, some of it is about what you might think of as the, uh, the, uh, the architecture of the legislation in, in, in this area. So uh, the, the, most of the rules that govern our elections were written in the year 2000. Uh, Several prime ministers ago, and and of course, way before uh, social media and and the sort of the the mass digital communication uh, of our political leaders uh, with with, with the public. So, really, that 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 area is not fit for purpose at all, and and, and needs quite a quite a major overhaul. And then there are some particular initiatives that could be taken uh, around making sure that um, social media and political advertising, uh, the the reader or the, the viewer and the voter is aware of who's promoting this, where this comes from, the, the, uh, the digital imprint, if you like, so that if people are being, uh, if there's an attempt at propaganda, misinformation, uh, trying to sway people uh, in, a, in a way that's outside what you might consider the normal rough and tumble of political debate, uh, then at least there's an opportunity for people to know who's pushing this message at them. And I think the final area is who's influencing our influences and the report's pretty damning uh, on that area as well. So that needs tightening up.
1: I mean, the problem with all this, Darren, is it, it's good to talk in these terms, but actually doing the work of nailing it down, saying what the rules are that would actually make a big difference, is going to be extremely difficult, because part of the nature of, all, of, of the cut and thrust of a political campaign is that views come from everywhere and lots of different places. I mean, how on earth do you actually make it sure? How, how can you even define what constitutes interference?
2: I I think that's a a really good point because uh, you you know you you do expect a lot of movement in a a political campaign. That's the reason we have them. That that, uh, you're trying to, uh, candidates and leaders are trying to motivate their usual supporters and win over new ones for that particular election. So you do expect to see um, you know quite quite robust uh, debate and discussion. But actually, uh, this takes it to a whole other level, which is uh, you know as the report suggests. Foreign actors saying, "How can we throw the proverbial kitchen sink at this scenario to try and disrupt uh, the uh, the electorate and disrupt the campaign uh, to to the to the extent we're able to?" Now, it relies not just on technology, although we've seen that you know that that, that the case has been made for the technological um, interventions that have been been made. The proof is there, but but what really it, uh, it relies on also is people in that country. Uh, being influenced by this sort of activity. Now, that can either be overt, and in which case there's uh, that's why MI5 need to be doing a lot more work on this than they have been, or it can be un- unwitting that, that people become uh, connected to people with another agenda through donations to parties, through uh, the kind of uh, the report points to political organisations, academics, charities, people who think they're doing uh, interesting work, but actually are becoming entangled in this web. And I think sunlight's the, the best disinfectant on, on that. But I agree with you that it's not it's not as simple as A plus B equals C. There's a lot of subjectivity in all of this, uh, but you've got to at least be trying to do something about it. The report suggests we're not doing anywhere near enough uh, to make it an uninviting proposition to foreign actors.
3: And w- what about elections that aren't necessarily general elections? I'm talking about internal party stuff where so much of that is digital, and of course, if it's a leadership election, for example, for the leader of the opposition or whatever, that is going to have a big impact on political discourse. And sounds, at the surface of it, quite vulnerable to hacking.
2: Well, I think the the, the, uh, the providers of these uh, sort of services need to be, uh, you know, ever vigilant uh, to make sure that they they are not um, the victims of of hacking. Because what, one of the um, the balances to be struck here is that. Uh, participation seems to go up a lot in these kind of internal elections where you can make it easy for somebody to vote off the back of their smartphone kind of thing. So that's probably seen as a real positive. And, and the UK companies uh, that do this have been you know, very good at uh, innovating good products. Um, but on the other hand, of course, uh, without the record of a paper-based uh, system, if there is any interference or hacking, uh, it can be very hard to unpick that. So I think you know that, that that's where you also want to be making sure that uh, uh, although they may be internal elections for what are essentially private organisations, uh, you know, our security and intelligence services need to be making sure that all of these uh, tools that might be misused by uh, nefarious, uh, people with nefarious agendas are being monitored the whole time and protected. So, you know, just like the maintenance you do to a physical asset, uh, there's really important maintenance to be done to our digital assets.
1: Now, you—you, you, I mean, the Electoral Reform Society have a role in this to some extent. I mean, many people will know that organisations holding elections very often use your offices, your good offices, to deal with that. Do you see your part as an organisation in trying to to keep these tight and free from interference as getting almost more difficult, really, because of these kind of threats?
2: Well, well, what we, what we do is um, as an independent kind of advocacy campaigning organisation, separate from government, no. Uh, no party affiliation. You know, we we just try and speak up uh, on behalf of the uh, on, on behalf of the voters. And uh, you know, there are separate companies that, that are out there that, uh, that that provide election services. And I think that uh, you know, I, I'm certain that that one of the things that keeps them awake at night is uh, uh, how to make sure that the security is right up to speed and, and right up to date. And I think you know, so far what we've really seen are uh, attempts to uh, hack. Uh, more, um, well, it was recently as recently as, as the last uh, period, we've seen att- attempts to hack into uh, universities and, and organizations working on uh, vaccines for COVID 19, for example. So, you know, with a really, um, as I say, nefarious type of motivation. But I think it's also about not necessarily the hacking of a particular election, but actually trying yeah. to influence in a negative way everything leading up to that election. But we'll, we've got to keep our eye on that particular ball as well.
1: Bloomberg Westminster, listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.